By now, you've probably seen ads about the water contamination at Camp Lejeune everywhere. People who got sick after drinking that toxic water are now able to seek repayment for their medical costs because of a new law, the PACT Act. What those other ads don't tell you is that because the PACT Act is a fresh law, it's important to find an attorney who understands the new claims forms. There is a limited time to file your Camp Lejeune claim, so you need a lawyer who can get it right the first time. The experienced team of attorneys at SickMarine.com is ready to file your claim. They will fight for you and they won't take no for an answer. Sign up at SickMarine.com. Hope, Faith, and the Republican Party. This is episode 81 of En Route. that is at the intersection of Church and Maine. I am Dennis Sanders, and I am your host. On the same weekend that the Ukrainian and Russian war began, there were two and a half political conferences being held, and all were dealing with conservatism in some way. Um, First was CPAC, the annual conservative conference. It's been around for decades, but as of late has pretty much become mostly a MAGA affair. And actually across the street from CPAC was the America First Political Action Conference, which is actually a nice way of saying it's a gathering of white nationalists, hence the half. Those both took place in Orlando. In Washington, there was another gathering of conservatives who weren't white nationalists or MAGA heads. Principle First is a gathering of never-Trump conservatives discussing the current state of conservatism and how to beat back Trumpism. Among the many speakers at that event was today's guest, Reed Howard. Reed is the Director of Communications at the Institute of Politics and Public Policy at Georgetown University. He holds a Master's of Divinity at Candler School of Theology in Atlanta, and served as minister at Central United Methodist in Atlanta, Georgia. In this episode, we talk about the role of faith and politics and what's next for the Neville Trump movement. Let's listen in. It's great to have you back. This is actually the second time. It's it's actually been almost a year since the last time you were on. It's good to be back. I'm really excited to to get to share some time with you and and talk with you. Yeah, yeah. It has been a while. Well, I wanted to um, talk to you about your recent um, panel that you were on at the Principles uh, First Summit. Um, it took place a few weeks ago in um, D.C. And I think the first thing I'd want to do is to, for people who don't aren't as familiar with Principles First, to kind of explain what they're all about um, and your role within it. 
Sure. So Principles First is a grassroots organization. It's 100% volunteer-led, and it's focused on restoring principal leadership in the 21st century. We're primarily political conservatives or people on the right of center who believe that the country, that the conservative movement took a wrong turn in 2016. And we're trying to bring it back on course, not by focusing on personalities, but on principles. So, you know, we believe in things like the equality and dignity of all human beings and the value of a free press and the strength of our democratic institutions. Our group has been very vocal against the big lie that the election was stolen. And so we've been trying to create a space for people who think that the Republican Party has become too radicalized and who want to reclaim some of the core conservative principles in this movement. So what we did is we hosted an annual summit um, in Washington, D.C. at the National Press Club, where we brought together people from across the political spectrum. We had center-left Democrats to, you know, strong constitutional conservatives get together in a room, begin to think through some ideas for how we can begin to reclaim the Republican Party um, and how we can begin to restore some sanity among our elected leaders. So it was a great conversation. There were different panels all throughout the day, and I had the privilege of moderating one of those panels. And what happened at that, um, can you kind of explain what happened at at that panel? It was basically dealing with faith. Yes. So the panel was on. So I think something that's always been important to the conservative movement is faith and um, what was traditionally understood as values voters. And in the last couple of years, Um, the role that evangelicals in particular or other people of faith have played in our elections has become really politicized and I think somewhat unrecognizable from how we traditionally understood Christian involvement in our politics. Mm -hmm. And so this this panel was about um, politics and the pulpit, the future of faith in America was the title. And I was really interested in getting together people who could speak specifically to the evangelical movement and why evangelical leaders decided to align with Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020. When, you know, when you look at it on the outset, this is a man who bragged about sexual assault um, and who demonized immigrants where one of the Bible's, you know, main calls is to welcome the foreigner and the immigrant. Um, So there's a lot of reasons why it would seem like it's an unnatural pairing for evangelicals to support Donald Trump. And I wanted to explore that in the panel. And how did the panel go? It seems like I think in talking about this beforehand, it seemed to go in a direction no one was, was expecting. Yeah, it was really interesting. So we had um, Pete Wehner, who is, um, who is, uh, you know, writes for the Atlantic and the New York Times, worked in the Ronald Reagan administration, the George H.W. Bush administration, and the the George W. Bush administration. We had Knapp Nasworth, who was um, one of the 
political editors at the Christian Post. And he actually left that position when they decided to, when his organization wrote an editorial endorsing Donald Trump. And then the other panelist was Elizabeth Newman, who worked in the Trump administration. She worked in the Department of Homeland Security, and she studied threats to our national security and specifically white supremacist violence and extremism. One of the really interesting outcomes from this conversation was looking at just how closely um, white grievance was tied into this evangelical decision to back Donald Trump. And I'll, I'll pull out, you know, one thing in particular, you know, I framed the conversation with a quote that Pete Weiner um, wrote in an article for the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably helpful for me to share this with your listeners for our conversation today. He wrote the evangelical church is breaking apart when the Christian faith is politicized Churches become repositories not of grace, but of grievances. Places where tribal identities are reinforced, where fears are nurtured, and where aggression and nastiness are sacralized. So that kind of set the tone for our discussion. And in kind of thinking about all of that, you know, what did you feel that you learned from that, from that table uh, panel? Yeah, you know, I learned that in order to break from this moment, we're going to need leaders who have the courage of their convictions to show us the better path. We need leaders who can speak to our um, kinder, more gentler angels um, and help to dislodge some of the politicization that has creeped into our, our church life. You know, I think um, uh, William, William Seward, who was the Secretary of State for Abraham Lincoln, um, has this quote, and I think it's really relevant to um, where we're at today. He said, there's always just enough virtue in this republic to save it, sometimes none to spare, but still enough to meet the emergency. And I, I believe that we're in this era in which moral leadership is needed to rebuild trust in our democracy. Mm-hmm. And we need moral leaders to help restore this frayed social contract. And the task of, of moral restoration um, requires thoughtful leaders who possess the integrity, courage, and imagination to lead this change. So I came out of this panel's discussion convicted of that more than ever. Now, one of the things, you know, there's always been in our, our nation, this of church or a faith and politics kind of coming together in yeah. different ways. And sometimes for very good reasons, um, obviously the civil rights movement was, was one, one such example. Mm-hmm. What is it about this, merger or this kind of coming together of religion and politics that has been basically so volatile and so detrimental to the body politic. Um, Because it seems like it's not that the two shouldn't come together at times, but it's how they come together or why they come together. Yeah. So 
there's another factor for how these two converge so explosively. And I think we're dealing with this epidemic of loneliness in the United States. Mm-hmm. We have a hollowing out of our local communities where people don't know their neighbors anymore. They don't know their store clerks. You know, it used to be you would walk into a barber shop and you knew your barber. You walked into, you know, the grocery store and the grocery store, you knew their families and they knew your family. And so if, it, if your kid was <laughs> running down the street and stealing some bubble gum, like, you know, the, the store owner would be able to call you up and, and help to correct those problems um, internally because you were all a tight knit community. And now we don't know those people. And, and um, people are look desperate for connection. Humans are relational beings. That's how we understand our identity. Um, that's how we grow compassion. Um, and it's why, um, it's why when we're introduced to some poisons in our body politic who can give us identity and who can give us a tribe, it's so addictive to us. When Fox News is telling us lies And that's the only source of news that we're listening to. And they say, we're all on a team and we're against these other people. That's appealing to us because we don't have any local connections of our own to give us that sense of belonging. And that's where I think um, this Trump phenomena came at a time where it could just be gobbled up so easily by a lot of people who were looking for connection and for meaning and who were already feeling like they were on the outs. Um, There's another, to bring in some science to this, um, Jonathan Haidt, who's a psychologist, Mm -hmm. um, has this quote, um, people bind themselves into political teams that share moral narratives. Once they accept a particular narrative, they become blind to alternative moral worlds. That's really kind of fascinating stuff. That's the human brain, the human psyche. It's hardwired into us. Mm-hmm. And I think not only can partisan division cause legislative gridlock, which we see in D.C. all the time, but partisan division can influence our psychological ability to make reasonable ethical calculations about right and wrong. And that's a really dangerous, you know, development. Um, and I think this is how this allows us to more easily demonize individuals or groups with whom we disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's creates this volatile, um, you know, democratic norms where we're at the behest of our party leaders. Um, and, you know, if you're rooted in a community if you know people who are different than you because you spend time with them, you're less susceptible to these types of, um, this type of demagoguery. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that's kind of, that's kind of what I think the problem is. I'm curious, Dennis, what you've heard and seen and, and how you think that we're being impacted by this moment. Well, I would agree with some of what you've said. What's interesting is, um, one of the the things that I remember hearing from the 2016 um, election mm-hmm. were who was who really kind of were more susceptible to um, Donald Trump's message. Right. Um, 
And there were people who who maybe called themselves evangelical, but they rarely went to church. Yes. And so they were very much kind of cut off from other people. And, and, you know, maybe the faith that they had was more of a kind of very odd civic faith, um, for lack of a better word. Um, but it wasn't anything that was reared or, or nurtured at all in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sometimes think that that's a lot of what's, what is happening is that you have a lot of people who may understand kind of the language of faith, but they're not really necessarily attached to a community. Or if they are part of a community, it's kind of a, well, I think it's one of the things that you maybe see at, at um, really large or mega churches is that you can go to a mega church or go to a big church or things like that, but you're not necessarily connected to that community. And so I think that's where I see where the, the lack of, of really being grounded is showing itself, is that you have basically a bunch of people who felt alone and drifting Mm -hmm. and now are basically bound together by who they don't like. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I think, so Christianity today, the legendary like evangelical, um, you know, media organization did a study of 2016 primary voters. And if somebody called themselves an evangelical and went to church they were unlikely to vote for Donald Trump in the yes. primary. Yes, yep. However, if they called themselves an evangelical and they didn't go to church, they were 75% likely to vote for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I think, you know, the church is where you will, it's where you kind of learn kind of that moral grounding. And obviously not every church does this well, because there are those that don't. But, you know, like dealing with immigrants, you know, you would talk about caring for people, um, caring for the poor, caring for the immigrants. You learn that at a church. But if you just kind of call yourself something, but then don't go to the church, that makes it a whole lot easier for you than to not like immigrants or to say mean things towards people, persons with disabilities, for example, or things like that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So... What is then the challenge for um, people on the center right who tend to be much more religious? Um, how do they meet that this, this challenge? Because it seems like there are a lot of people, at least within um, conservatism today, that in some ways what is their faith is what at least is ever is, is, I guess, for lack of a better word, Trumpism. And mm-hmm. so how do you counter that as people with faith who come from a, maybe a center right background? Yeah. Well, it's interesting the way that you phrase that people, people whose religion has kind of become Trumpism. Um, I think there's a very, um, I think we have to refresh our mindset with how we think about these voters, how we talk about these these voters, not just voters, but, you know, citizens and neighbors. Um, 
we've, we've long talked, thought about them as values voters. And I think what's probably a more accurate descriptor is nostalgia voter. Mm. Because there's a real difference between... So, so I study evangelicalism. So this is where a lot of my framework comes in. So evangelicalism is a multi-ethnic movement. Mm-hmm. There's significant constituencies among Asian, Black, Latinx, and white Americans. Um, but there's real differences between white evangelicals and um, these other racial groups. And, and I lump them all in together as other racial groups, noting that there's, there's vast differences between these communities. But when you, when you look at the data, there's some real cleavages that persist between the white evangelicals and the other racial ethnic groups combined. And, and when I say the data, what I'm talking about is um, there's this very specific nationwide study that was led out of UCLA by some very respected political scientists. It's called the 2016 Collaborative Multiracial Post-Election Survey. It was, people were really interested in looking at how voters of faith operated um, in the 2016 election. And what's interesting is there's some correlations here. So there's a closer correlation between evangelical racial groups on issues like a ban on same-sex marriage and abortion. So no matter what your race is, if you're an evangelical, you're pretty much synced on same-sex marriage and abortion. However, this survey looked at a couple of other key political issues as well. They looked at um, uh, people's opposition to government intervention when it comes to climate change, for example. They looked at the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And white evangelicals were twice, at least twice as likely to take a conservative position on climate change and Black Lives Matter as their Asian American, Latinx, and Black evangelical counterparts. So so there's there's something at play here. It's it's not just faith. It's it's race. So when you, when you're asking about um, you know how should we approach these voters, I just I think it's really important that we mark the differences between all the different communities of evangelicals that exist in the country. Mm-hmm. So when you're kind of dealing with especially white evangelicals, and you're dealing with some of these issues, you know, you're dealing with, with things like race or sexuality or other kind of touchstone issues. Yeah. There is a temptation to just probably immediately discount them. That just mm-hmm. to say, well, you're just a bigot. Why uh, should I yeah. work with you? Is there any way of trying to, to reach people like that or is it just a lost cause so i believe that hope dies last i don't think that there's lost causes um however there's no shortcut to getting out of this moment Mm -hmm. it takes relationship and connection to get people out of um out of these kind of really harmful ideologies. And 
Um, not everybody is going to be called to this work because there's been some really kind of deep scarring people, you know, people in the LGBT community who have faced homophobia um, and it's really negatively impacted their lives. Like it's not fair to go and ask them to go talk with somebody who's deeply homophobic. Um, but there are people who are able to stand at that, at that division line and have those conversations and, I really believe that that's a vocation. Um, mm -hmm. It's there's this there's um, this practice called deep canvassing, and it's a uh, it's it's kind of like political canvassing, where you go out and you knock on doors and ask people if they're signing up for, um, uh, you know, ask them if they're voting for a particular candidate. Deep canvassing work is. Um, very intentional and it's um, consistent. You go to people more often and you have conversations and you put people in a room together. And the thing is, is proximity begins to change you. Um, when you know somebody, it's really hard to demonize them. And, and that's where I think churches and, and pastors and, you know, um, people who are leaders in their congregations we really need you to step up um, and to do this work of bringing people together and creating spaces where they can have these bold and brave conversations. Finding even just one piece of common ground can be really helpful to help, um, to help soothe these conversations. So even if it's like a common identity and the fact that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior can, can be powerful um, I've seen this done in a couple of really great ways. There's this program in Atlanta called Fearless Dialogues. And it's, it's led by a professor out of Emory University. And they've done a lot of research and what to do to get people together in a space where they can have uncomfortable conversations and walk, walk away um, stronger and feeling, you know, healthier as opposed to just divided. Um, and so, so that's a great model, fearless dialogues. Um, and then, you know, I know that there's some other practices around the country. You don't have to, you don't have to have some type of fancy researched curriculum that you're going through. Um, I think sometimes you just sit people down with good intentions to have this work and then it snowballs. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's the inner pastor in me coming out. <laughs> so, how do you see this as, you know, we're coming up to an election in November for midterms and then ultimately in 2024, yeah. um, you know, we're, there's a lot of talk about um, whether or not uh, um, Donald Trump will run again. Mm -hmm. um, some people have already considered that he will be the nominee um, already. So does it, is it imperative at this point in time to start those kind of conversations that can maybe make a difference in some way um, in how uh, the Republicans choose who's ever going to be their next standard bearer? Well, you know, Dennis, the, the type of work that I was just talking about, that's really the work of racial reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And that is not ever going to fit neatly on an election timeline. 
It's work that people have been doing for generations in America. And it's work that needs to be ongoing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it that when I was speaking at the beginning of our conversation about moral leaders, like that's really, we need people that are called to this work of, of restoration and reconciliation. So, so I, you know, I don't have a lot of hope that conversations that begin tomorrow or, you know, today are going to bring people where we need to go for this next election. That's, that's to say that. I will say, I think the 2022 and 2024 elections are kind of crucial proving grounds for American politics. And I'm really worried about what some of the outcomes can be. And that's why I think people need to be called into uncommon coalitions and people need to think seriously about who their vote is supporting, who they're giving their vote to. And maybe even if they voted Republican all their life, they need to think about some other choices if those political candidates have embraced the big lie or, you know, acknowledge that they think Donald Trump should still be president. Um, some of these other just things that are against truth. Hmm. So it seems like it will, it, like there are two things going on because I think you're right. It sounds like this is not a project that's going to be solved in two years. Um, racial reconciliation takes a, it's a process. It's not a, you know, a day long talk and everything's dandy. Right. Um, right. But, you know, how do we, I don't know, how do we kind of rebuild maybe a politics that is moral? Um, I think that that's, has been something that has been lost. Mm-hmm. Um, if it ever was, but, it's kind of how do we kind of start the conversation, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Because we have to kind of start it somewhere. And do you see that happening already in different places within the party or within conservative circles? Yeah. Um, I think there's a couple of things that are unique to the conservative movement where we can begin to chip away at some of these, um, these unhealthy ties between religion and politics. So, um, so Lydia Bean is a researcher um, and she's kind of made the case that, that white evangelicals consider their national community to include not only a religious component, but um, some type of shared conservative political perspective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to state that another way, like political beliefs are tightly wound up in how some white evangelicals view their own faith. And that's where we need leaders in the pulpits to begin to pull that apart, to really share the message of the gospel and to unwound that from what our culture has said um, is the gospel. So, so that's a leadership problem in the church. 
And that's where I think we can have our seminaries begin to better educate our pastors, where we can have pastoral networks and denominations be more vigilant in this. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm part of the United Methodist tradition. In some parts of the country, you're going to find a Methodist tradition that's really takes seriously the separation of church and state. Um, and making sure that we're not pushing political ideologies in the pews. And then in other parts of the country where, you know, you're going to see Methodist pastors advocating for political candidates at the pulpit. And I think we just need to get better as denominations um, in in teaching our leaders about that so that they can teach their congregation, that they can move their congregations in a different direction. I think one of the challenges, though, is, and I, you've probably read, read these stories as well, is that there have been pastors that are trying to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And the result has been they've been run out of their churches or they end up leaving the ministry entirely. Um, is there some way of helping those pastors um, have some sense of a support network um, because I think you're right that we it's leadership that is necessary and pastors are more, I think, suited to this than anyone else. Mm-hmm. But it is also a challenge and that it's it has come at a cost for, for a lot of um, pastors in white evangelical churches. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in terms of positive solutions, I think there's ways to create um like trainings and courses for how pastors can have these hard conversations. Mm -hmm. I think there's ways of pulling pastors together in community groups, whether it's, you know, throughout their individual conference or, um, you know, um, you know, church wide um, who are interested in figuring out how to do this well and strategically in their, in their congregation. Um, But I don't see any, efforts that are formally underway that offer these types of things. So often this is ad hoc. And, you know, I think a big part of where I've seen this happen is um, on the other side where you have LGBT pastors or pastors who want to teach a different um, kind of message on inclusion in the church around sexuality who have had to form these types of like unrecognized support groups throughout the denomination. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's no real solutions that are currently underway that I can point to Dennis. And I think that's part of the problem. Um, I think that's why there's, there's taking this out of the church for a second. You know, I'm a part of a couple of political groups that are trying to create infrastructure and organization to support leaders who want to move their political communities out of the current grip that Trumpism has. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that those are really important. So the extent that you can build these venues for conversation and community are essential. One question that I've also have is, and I'm, I'm reminded about 20, this was now back in shortly after September 11th, Mm-hmm. Um, is that we saw at that point um, George W. Bush, who did call himself and still does call himself an evangelical, also a United Methodist. Mm-hmm. Shortly after 
the um, after these attacks, he went to uh, a mosque in the, the D.C. area. And that was important um, yeah. because he was trying to frame this issue as not this was not being against Islam. This right. was kind of against a, a radicalism, but not the religion that people worship. That's kind of an example of leadership that we don't seem to have anymore. But the question that I'm thinking about is not as much the leaders as it is the followers. Were Did people listen to that message 20 years ago and then change? Or was there a problem already there that leaders just didn't really pick up on? There was certainly a problem already there. You know, I think Donald Trump is not the culprit. He is the symptom of this tension in America. However, I do believe that leadership makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a lot of ugly anti-Muslim discrimination in the immediate aftermaths of 9-11. It could have been a lot worse had George Bush pointed a laser missile at these Islamic communities in the country and said, they are the enemy, let's get them. And I think it took his persistence to try to reduce the harm that occurred. Now, I know that there was still ugly hate crimes that occurred. I'm not trying to say it was perfect, but I think leadership makes a difference here. Um, So in July of 2017, Pew Research did a study and it found that 72% of white evangelicals believed that Islam and democracy were in conflict. Donald Trump came up and said that we should impose a Muslim ban on Muslims trying to enter the country. So he, there was already this tension that existed in the populace between um, Muslims and um, and evangelicals, and Donald Trump just aggravated that further. So that's where I think an instance of leadership really does make a difference. Mm. So what is the future then in the next few years coming down the road? How does um, evangelicalism kind of change? Um, obviously, it seems like it's going to have to be leadership on one on the one hand, uh-huh. Um, kind of to reverse what has been done. Um, but are there other things that can be done or, or, you know, what, what, what is happening now that you think is going to have an effect maybe not two or four years from now, but 10 years from now? Yeah. Well, you know, I think we have to just be honest with ourselves and, um, in our in our in the spaces where we lead about the role that race plays in these conversations. Um, America has a very ugly history, and it doesn't do any of us good to pretend otherwise. We have to be able to name the problems that have creeped up. Um, I think the subtext to our conversation. I keep I've I've mentioned white evangelicals several times in here. And the subtext has been race, and we can't let that be subtext any longer. Um, and I think when we're having these conversations out in the open and people are grappling, grappling with it 
over and over again, we begin to understand a path forward. Right now, I think the path forward is really obfuscated because we don't have people who are <laughs> naming the problems that exist in our society. So I think there's a moral imperative to acknowledge the centrality that race plays in all of this. We should be talking about some of these evangelical voters as nostalgia voters, because I think that helps um, to, to really clarify what the issues at stake here are. I think people are hiding behind religion in a lot of stances because that's the more polite thing to do, quote unquote. Um, but by using the appropriate label, um, we can see the true issues that are motivating voters. Um, so, you know, I, I'll give this example. Um, Senator Ben Sass was caught. He was the United States Senator from Nebraska. He's a Republican. Um, he was caught on tape on a private call criticizing Donald Trump on October 15th, 2020. Um, and so he he was just kind of rebuking Trump, saying that he had mishandled the coronavirus response. The senator said he kisses dictators' butts, referring to Donald Trump. Um, he sells out our allies. He spends like a drunken sailor. Like he said all of this stuff. Um, but publicly, he was supporting the president. And I think that doesn't do any of us good. Um, to have these private concerns that are aired and then public leadership saying something differently. And I actually think that that's really confusing for voters because let's say you're, let's say you're a Republican in Nebraska and you listen to Fox news and they've told you that the election has been stolen and you listen to your president, Donald Trump, and he says that the election has been stolen and then the other kind of political figure that you agree with or, or you see some type of validity to their stance is, you know, your, your Republican Senator Ben Sass, and he's not saying anything about the election, whether the election is or is not stolen. Um, what are you going to do? You're going to believe that the election was stolen because Fox News, what you trust is saying it, your president is saying it, your elected officials are saying it. Um, and that would lead people to, to take up arms. I actually don't blame them. Um, I, think they I think the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th should be thrown in jail. I think they're responsible for their own actions. But I think of them more as marks of a con and a lie um, than I think that, you know, I think that's kind of the primary way I, I think about that. And I think that's, the crisis of leadership that we've been facing. Hmm. I think one, one thing that also has been a challenge about that crisis of leadership is the, basically the results of, of speaking up um, mm -hmm. and, and not to say that that is not worth it because I think it is. Um, but I also know, it's hard. It seems like it's a challenge because it's, it's the, the results are not, um, I think it's, it's, it's basically that the results are not always rewarding is for lack of a better term. 
So mm-hmm. I'm trying not to necessarily condone what they're saying, but I think maybe trying to understand why sometimes politicians don't say anything. Um, it's not helpful, but I think it's kind of like, how do you, um, how do you make it that the benefits are a little bit more in their favor, if that makes sense? Yeah. Okay, so I can give you a very wonky political science answer, if that's helpful. This is... Go this right is, ahead. <laughs> so, um, uh, there's... We, so, in order to give an incentive for politicians to speak out, we need to create some type of infrastructure to reward them speaking out. Mm-hmm. So, so, right now, like, we have a very, like, heterogeneous national party there's not a lot of bandwidth for diverse thought. Nope. And it's because our Congress has become, um, the power in Congress has become so centralized, like the speaker and the party leaders control like the NRCC and the fundraising committees for the party and the endorsing mechanisms of the party. So if somebody's running for Congress in a Republican primary and they say, Hey, I don't like Kevin McCarthy or I don't like Donald Trump. Like these party organizations are going to come in and rip away. They're not going to give them donors. They're going to take away staff on the ground. Um, There's, there's, there's adverse incentives from speaking out. So what we need to do is come in and supply, um, an alternative form of fundraising and an alternative party structure somewhere that we can funnel volunteers and money into the campaigns of courageous conservatives. Um, And and that's what I think is really going to make a difference. I think politicians, um, the politicians that we have now often act in their self-interest. They're interested in one getting reelected They're interested in two, having capital within their caucus when they are elected. So they want to be leaders on committees and they want to move up the ranks. And then three, I think they just want to keep their jobs because a lot lot of these people have financial incentives to stay in Congress. Um, So those are all problems that we have to tackle. But but really, um, we have to do the hard work of organizing and moderate conservatives center-right factions have always been essential to hold back far-right extremist elements. That's been true um, throughout the centuries. And um, right now, the the center-right caucus faction has atrophied um, as the result of failed leadership, as the result of people not being willing to... um, stand up to the polls. Principles first movement, which we started talking about at the beginning of this conversation, um, is not focused on reading the polls and doing what the polls say. We're focused on changing the polls. And we need more leaders and leadership like that. Hmm. No, and I I agree. I think um, that has been something I've said for a long time is that the incentive structure needs to change um because i don't think as much as i think and 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 
loving seeing someone like an Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney speak out, um, no matter the cost. Uh, not everyone is an Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney, and there needs to be a, a structure or incentive that allows people to say what they need to say. Um, and I won't say that, that they won't say it without any fear, because there's always danger in, in speaking up. But to make it less of a, of a challenge um, and make it easier, because there seems to be a need for more voices um, and getting us kind of back to the faith angle, there need to be more leaders within that movement that can um, be able to speak out and kind of do that without a fear of basically having the the dogs of hell kind of coming after them. Um, again, speaking out, it, no matter what you do, it's always going to have a risk. Um, but to make it a little bit less, more, more of an incentive, not necessarily less risky, but more of an incentive to do it, I think could help turn back the tide, um, especially when it comes to um, issues concerning um, um, faith and all of that. Yeah, you know, so there's this really, I want to get, I want to get back to the, to the faith part in mm -hmm. just a second. Yes. But if, if I can stay on the politics for, for just for one more comment, I think there's this really interesting book written by Jeffrey Caviservice, and it's called Rule and Ruin. And it's on the history of the moderate wing of the Republican Party. It's on, to put it more explicitly, it's on the decline of the moderate wing of the Republican Party. And one of the things that he traces in it is there's been a couple of moderate attempts throughout history. So Nelson Rockefeller tried to really moderate the Republican Party. There's this thing called the Ripon Society that tried to to moderate the Republican Party. Each time, though, they may have made decisions to not invest in grassroots organizations and building out leaders and doing the hard work of politics. It's like getting people together and getting them to door knock for candidates and organize is not easy. And each time these moderate, like the Ripon Society, for example, was debating internally whether or not they should build out state chapters and get leaders on the ground. Um, and they made a decision to become more of an intellectual movement and to start a magazine and influence that way. But what you saw is the more hard right groups, they got people together and they got boots on the ground and then they ended up winning at the end of the day. Um, I think that is something that we have really faced in this modern fight is a lot of groups coming together a lot of groups doing flashy things by sharing great ads and podcasts, but websites. not websites. Yeah. <laughs> um, but not pulling people together and giving them like tasks that they can do in person and on the ground and building up groups to go and support candidates. So that's been a failure of our moderate movement that we really need to, to counteract. To go to the faith angle we were talking about this earlier, like there is no replacement for hard work. Mm -hmm. And these conversations are hard and challenging work. And there's going to be some people who leave the pews because they don't want to have conversations about the truth of race in this country. And it's possible, 
that if they're willing to walk out because their pastor wants to have this conversation, that we might have to cut our losses there. And I think that's something a lot of pastors don't want to do because they rely on, you know, butts and seats for coins in the coffer. And that's an ugly reality of the system that we live in. Um, But I think there is a way to do it that's not totally isolating to every audience. So you can have conversations about race with people who have never had those types of discussions before in a way that they feel welcomed into the conversation. Um, You don't always have to jump to the most extreme version of that conversation. you got to ease people into it. Mm -hmm. Um, Last thing I'll share, um, and then I'll I'll turn it back, uh, is I I went to church um, in Atlanta um, in for, for a year at this congregation that was, that was mostly white. And, um, they decided to have a series of discussions around the 1619 project where they brought in articles, um, and they had people read them together. Um, and, um, it began to open up our awareness for the ways that other communities are thinking about these issues. And over time, it built up this understanding, which then made some people want to reach out to some communities that didn't look like them to have conversations as well. So I I share that to say that work grows on top of work and this effort compounds and you might think that you're having little impact or it's such a small discussion group. How can this really create the type of of impact we need? But these things have a tendency to scale up Mm -hmm. and courage is contagious. And so for all of your listeners, I just encourage them to step up and be leaders where they are. We need to start where we stand and we'll be surprised at the results that that can have. Hmm. You've used this word um, a few times in the conversation, and that is nostalgia voter. Yes. How would you define nostalgia in this case? Yeah, you know, that's that's a really good question. Um, I think there's uh, this embattled in-group mentality where people that are realizing that America is becoming a little less Christian and a little less white, and they're scared of losing control or of losing what they've always known to be America. And, and that's where I see this nostalgia mindset really kind of coming into place. Um, I, I, let me pull up uh, some, some data or just share a piece of data with you. Um, I think in 2016, there was another survey done by Pew in which they asked, um, has discrimination today, uh, has discrimination against whites become as big a problem as discrimination against blacks and other minorities? And 63% of white people said yes. That does not, 
<laughs> that does not sit right with me. I do not think that discrimination is as bad against whites as it is against blacks and minorities in this country. But there's a real constituency for that belief. And that is at its core what a nostalgia voter is. You know, they value the control that a white Christian America, the idea of a white Christian America gives them. Mm. So is it that they don't see or are afraid of what America could become? Be, um, I, I guess, you know, I'm always kind of amazed by this because what was the kind of biggest musical of the last few years was Hamilton. Right. Which had a cast of mostly African-Americans and Latinos. And they were all talking about the founding of our country. Um, uh -huh. And to me, that's the future of America. That That's, they didn't, you know, they weren't talking about America sucks or that, you know, it's terrible. They were talking about the same values. Yeah. They just kind of, in some ways, remixed it. Um, right. So it's just, I just find that interesting that they can't, it seems like there are people who can't see that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think to give you a more specific answer, I think nostalgia voters are somebody who previously enjoyed a real or imagined normative claim on American culture and political power. And now they fear that their power and cultural majority is slipping at the hands of a different group. And so they look at the cast of Hamilton and they go, why isn't it white people? And they go, could my white son not be able to be in that cast of Hamilton? And they, they get worried about that um, real or imagined. Um, and, you know, I think, um, in the face of cultural change, I think this group of, of white voters had a realization um, that they could no longer convert the nation to levels um, which would produce their desired political change. This is like very like academic language, but I think essentially what I'm trying to say is um, I think evangelical voters for a really long time operated under this mindset that if they elected moral exemplars, they could convert other people to their own faith and their way of life. I think they saw that in George W. Bush, for example, who was a very outwardly sincere evangelical. They're like, he's a man of God. He'll help to convince other people to become men of God as well, men and women of God. Um, I think there's this idea of um, when that America is a melting pot, but that when people become a melting pot, they'll essentially become white. Um, like they'll, they'll, well, I, I think this is an idea of the nostalgia. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just yeah. kind of funny because, but continue. <laughs> I'll let you continue. <laughs> Right. But I, I think this is why somebody like Donald Trump is so appealing to this group, because what they're now looking for is a cultural warrior who's going to fight back against the perceived decline of white America. And, and Donald Trump said he was going to be a fighter and he was going to be a bully and he was going to be brash. And he is different than the type of candidates that 
this group supported in the past. He's not a George W. Bush figure. And I think part of that is there was a tactic switch among the evangelical elites. So the people like Franklin Graham and um, Jerry Falwell, and they decided their goal used to be to enforce behavioral guidelines um, through moral exemplars and persuasion. And what they realized is as the percentage of white Americans and Christian Americans was declining, they had to have a different tactic and they had to enforce their behavioral codes on others through the power of the state, through laws. They had to push back against gay marriage. They had to push back against abortion in the courts and through laws. They had to um, push back against things like critical race theory in classrooms. Like they're now using the power of the state in a way that they weren't as concerned about before. And so, so that is the nostalgia voter at its core. Hmm. So. <laughs> Real hopeful <laughs> stuff, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, but, but I guess one of the challenges though is, as you said, is, you know, you're, you want to try to have conversations with these mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. But that's also a challenge because if they have this viewpoint, they're kind of at a point where they see people in terms of friend enemy. And, you know, if you have this viewpoint that things are changing and that's okay, then you're the enemy. So how do you build that bridge? Yeah. I don't have the answer to that. I think that's something that I have been um, stumbling through Mm -hmm. and, and trying to build up those connections with. I spend a lot of time working in Republican politics and working with these evangelical communities and you know, I think I didn't see a lot of models that worked and were effective. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I did is, you know, is well, I think, I think we're still looking for those answers. Um, I think that's the work that people have been doing for generations to create change and, you know, from civil rights leaders and activists who are trying to pull in conversations about race and force this into the national dialogue. Um, I think I think we've always had this, well, not all, but I think a lot of young folks have had this mindset that change is inevitable, that we're going to progress as a society, that we're going to become kinder, more gentler, more civil people. And, um, and that's not the case. We can backslide and we just, we have to be persistent in moving the ball forward and, and having these conversations. I think, um, we have to be really intentional about engaging young people in this movement. There's groups like Turning Point USA, which is led by Charlie Kirk, which are getting a lot of young conservatives, like, high school and college age kids excited about this MAGA movement and excited about some of the 
the the um, white supremacist thinking of the Trump administration. And so we have to provide just as robust a response against that and pushing it back. Um, so, you know, I am wor- I work at a university now. Um, I work with a lot of college students who see themselves as political leaders one day. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing is we're intentionally trying to pop filter bubbles and put students in connection with others that don't think like them or talk like them so that they can begin to get this familiarity with another point of view and begin to learn how to have difficult and hard conversations across the aisle. And and it's been really kind of incredible to see how receptive young people are to that. So I think I think there's certainly reason to hope. Well, I hope so. <laughs> you know, it, it's... I think a lot, a lot of people, it's hard these days to see a lot of hope. Um, I think it's possible. And I think you and others are trying to bring that about. But to be honest, it, it can seem very difficult to see that. Um, just because of the, I think especially because of the ferociousness of, of, of the mood of kind of the MAGA world. Um, it just seems like it's not possible, but in some ways we've been here before and it has actually changed. That's right. And, you know, when you think about these things in the abstract and in the aggregate, um, it can seem really hard to figure out the path forward, but when you're actually sitting down and talking with somebody one-on-one, I've always been really impressed by the basic human goodness that kicks in. Even if you deeply disagree with somebody, when you see them eye to eye, it is hard for humans to have a visceral unkindness towards somebody else. And um, that gives me hope. When you go and you get off of Twitter and you get off of online communities Like there's real opportunities to move the needle in significant ways. I've seen that in my own life with, you know, my sexuality, for example, when I, when, when I'm talking to somebody and they say that they're, you know, against, you know, gay people, for example, and, and I come out to them, like it, the conversation becomes very different and, and that gives me hope, but it just means that we need to invest in these hard conversations. I think I've said this multiple times now today, but, you know, there's no way around hard work. Nope. And that's what we're called to as pastors, as people of faith. We're called to love our neighbors. We're called to invest in the people around us. I love um, in Micah, the book of Micah, there's this. Um, conversation between, um, uh, well, there's these people trying to figure out how to glorify God. And they say, should we bring God rivers of oil and our fattest calves and, and the finest luxuries of the ancient world? And then God actually chimes in and he, he poses, um, he poses a, 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 a rhetorical question. He goes, what does the Lord require of you? And, and then God answers. He says, um, to walk humbly with your Lord, to do justice and to love kindness. That's Micah 6, 8. 
And um, that's what we're called to do every day. And if we do that, we shouldn't give up hope. We should have confidence that that better days are to come. And with each breath and with each, and with each step, we can enact greater justice. Even if it's on our little corner and slice of the world, it can grow and expand. Um, and so I have hope. I, you know, I have hope that we have a loving God um, and that when we do things that love kindness and do justice, there are other people who are going to be attracted to that. They're going to see, I want some of that. I don't know what they're up to over there, but I feel good when I'm a part of it. I feel like I'm a part of something that's bigger than myself. And what we offer is hope and light to the world as the, the hands and feet of, of um, God on this earth, guided by the Holy Spirit. And um, that's powerful and we shouldn't discount that. So, um, so there's plenty of reasons to be optimistic. We just can't forget that we also have to do the hard work. Mm-hmm. Well, on that truly hopeful note, I think that's a good place to end it. So thank you, Reed. This has been, I think this has been a good conversation. And um, my hope is that you can continue those hard conversations um, that can bring about some change. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. And, and, And thank you for holding this space. I've been listening to your podcast and I've really enjoyed the types of conversations and the way that you approach them. And so, so I'm grateful for your leadership in this as well. Well, thank you. All right. As we wrap up here, I'm going to try to start a new habit of really just sharing one call to action instead of like 50. Uh, So for this episode, um, I'd like to say that if you want to get your um, episode of the podcast in your email inbox, um, feel free to drop me a line at reverendpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can use the link that's in the show notes. Either way, uh, you will uh, get on the mailing list and um, you don't have to hunt very far to get it. It will come right to your email inbox. And that is it for this episode of En Route, the podcast that is at the intersection of Church and Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care, Godspeed, and see you soon.
By now, you've probably seen ads about the water contamination at Camp Lejeune everywhere. People who got sick after drinking that toxic water are now able to seek repayment for their medical costs because of a new law, the PACT Act. What those other ads don't tell you is that because the PACT Act is a fresh law, it's important to find an attorney who understands the new claims forms. There is a limited time to file your Camp Lejeune claim, so you need a lawyer who can get it right the first time. The experienced team of attorneys at SickMarine.com is ready to file your claim. They will fight for you and they won't take no for an answer. Sign up at SickMarine.com. Dot com.